Man, I am so uh, grateful to be with you guys at North Terran today. I, um, yeah, as Scott mentioned, uh, my name is Gavin. I'm the lead pastor of Woodstock City Church uh, over in the Atlanta area. Uh, we're one of the campus locations with North Point Ministries. I know you guys are probably familiar with Andy, so uh, he's my boss. He's, he's all right. So I, uh, I get to spend a lot of time with that guy and uh, Clay and Jeff Henderson and uh, a lot of other guys who have my job uh, over in Atlanta. So uh, I'm really grateful to be here. This is my very first time at North Terran. And so if you're here for the first time too, welcome. We're in the same boat. So, um, and they're not making you preach today. So there's a win for you. Um, that's, that's a good thing. Um, and, and I, I gotta tell you, my experience so far has been great. I, uh, I landed yesterday and drove straight to barbecue, which was awesome. And, uh, I ate, I told a few of you, I ate at this place called, uh, Hard Eight. Is that right? Hi, Hard Eight. Um, is so good, man. Like, I smell like it for the rest of the day, but it was worth it. And uh, it was delicious, man. I got like one of everything. It was like a $28 lunch, but that's all right. So uh, it was really good. And I was, I was super grateful to be here. And then I, I drove to the, uh, the hotel right afterwards. It was pretty full. And then I got to see like the big longhorn uh, cows or whatever they are. And they look scary, but awesome. So I, I saw those. And uh, so I feel like, man, this has been a fulfilling day already. So, uh, but last night I got to spend a little time with uh, some of your uh, team here that are involved in setup and teardown. And it was fun to talk with those guys because it reminded me of kind of how church for me started. I uh, left the marketplace to go into ministry to become a you know, professional Christian probably nine or so years ago. Um, about nine years ago. No, seriously, that's I'm professional. So I, uh, I get paid. I get paid to be a Christian. So that's it's true. So I... Um, so, so about nine years ago, I did that, and um, I became the lead pastor at, at, at Woodstock City Church, and we were portable at the time, a few hundred people, kind of like this, uh, in a school, set up and tear on every morning. I was, you know, at five in the morning, dragging trailers and helping people do that, and I was ill-equipped to do it, but I helped, and uh, we would set up everything every day, and we'd take it all down every day, and so uh, what a cool thing, man. I, like, this is like in a really neat way going back in time, and, and it reminds me of what life looked like nine years ago for us, and we spent seven years in that set up in teardown world. Personally, I did. And uh, it was really hard. It's hard work and you know that, but it's super rewarding work because people are showing up every week. And because of the effort that you're putting in, they're, they're kind of getting to see God in maybe a completely different way. Uh, in fact, you may be here for the first time, or maybe you're kind of a guest. You're not like a part of the team and, 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 and you don't even know all the things that are going on. You walk into a school, it doesn't look like a school. And it's just interesting to you. And that's why the North Tarrant Church is doing that because we think God really loves you, and we think God's super intrigued to have a relationship with you, and he, he doesn't really want to, like, pursue you to, to pay you back. He just wants to win you back, and so that's why this church exists, and um, in fact, today what we're going to talk about is a little bit more of that kind of culture of church thing, and so um, just quick caveat, if, if you are a North Tarrant church person, you're all in. Today, I hope will be helpful. I hope it will maybe define a little bit about kind of how the, our, our churches all operate together. Um, if you're not a church person, if you're skeptical, if, if you're here because people kept inviting you and they wouldn't shut up and maybe you're getting a free meal out of this or I don't know, like they promised you'd meet somebody cute. I don't know, like wherever, wherever you're here, um, today I think will be interesting for you because today may explain why you don't want to be a Christian or at least why you haven't ever considered it seriously. Um, what we're going to talk about today um, may give you verbiage that you can use against Christians, and I'm okay if you do that, and um, it may be really helpful for you. Wherever you land on faith eventually and wherever like, you decide where, where you're going to believe, because you believe in something, so, but whatever you decide to believe in ultimately, today I hope will be helpful and maybe peeling back the curtain a little bit on what Christianity in the church is actually supposed to kind of be. Um, 
Now, one more quick warning. If you are a Jesus follower, you're a North Tarrant church person, or just a church person in general, um, if you pay attention, and I'm not, you don't have to, you can count lights or take a nap or whatever, it's okay, but like, if you pay attention, at some point, you will push back mentally, okay? So, in your pushing back, my, my encouragement is for you to pause for just a second, and, and kind of take that thought captive, and, and, and don't, don't push back too much yet. Like, just sit in it for a, a, a while, maybe a couple of days or even a few weeks if you need to. Because I think what we're going to talk about is the heart of God. But the heart of God can be kind of messy, and it can be really, really gray. There's not a lot of black and white sometimes, and um, that's kind of hard for us to, to navigate. So, is that enough warning? Okay, are you intrigued, or you're really to leave? Either way. Okay, so... Um, so I grew up in the church. You don't have to raise your hand, but I bet some of you did too, right? I, I grew up going to church, and, and growing up going to church was a good thing for me. Um, it kind of kept me on the straight, straight and narrow for the most part, um, mostly because I was afraid of God. So I thought, if I do something wrong, you know, there's the lightning and all that, so let's just be good. And so, like, growing up in church was good for me in some respects. It kind of kept me on the right path. Um, but it also was really interesting because the church I grew up in, we didn't use the word for a lot. Like, I love the fact that you guys have your church, or your for North Tarrant, and I love that. And, and, and the church that I grew up in, we would not have used the word for, for anything. Like, we weren't really for anything. I, I remember uh, vividly being told over and over that I'm not allowed to drink or, or, or chew or, you know, like, hang around with people who do. Like, there's all this stuff. Like, we were uh, against premarital anything, like anything premarital, we were against it. The, the, the guy who led the youth group I was a part of, he, got, he was dating a girl and got engaged, and he didn't even hold her hand until they got married. And I remember thinking as he's telling me that, I'm trying to figure out how to make out with the girl beside me while he's explaining how he doesn't even hold hands with the girls. And I'm like, that's weird, dude, because I can't wait to hold hands, you know, so, um, or whatever. So, um, that, that was odd. I, I remember we, um, I didn't participate as much in this, but like I had friends that would go to like these like record or, or tape. We were, I'm older than you, some of you. So we like records and tapes and like they would have these like burning parties where they would bring their like, like devil music and they would burn them. Do you remember this? Has any of you ever do that before? It really stunk because then like a week later you had to go buy the Def Leppard tape again. You were like, why did I burn pour some sugar on me? That was the stupidest decision ever. So like, I remember my friends would go burn their stuff, and like a week later, they're at the record store buying it again, you know? And I thought, I told you, see, Metallica's awesome. So, um, so like, we were against everything. Like, like, we didn't really have a tagline, but as a church, if we had a tagline, th this was it. We, we were the church against everything. That was it. Like, hey, do you want to come to church with me? We're against everything, but you should come. It's awesome, right? That's, that's kind of how the church felt like for me. And, and growing up, like, I wish I could say that, like, that was like an 80s, 90s thing. But the reality is that that isn't like a decade thing. It's kind of a thing thing for church. Um, churches just tend to have a, a, a reputation or almost like a, a way of thinking that they, they just want to be against stuff. It's amazing how the church in our country, but it's not even here, around the world, is really known for being against things. In fact, we could say it this way, that people, people are way more familiar with what the church is against than what we are for. Think of all the things the church is against, or Christians are against. Okay, we could do this for a while. Let's do it for a minute. Think of the things that Christians have boycotted. It's unbelievable, right? Like, like Christians boycotted Disney at one point. You remember that? It worked really well. They're suffering, it seems like. Um, so, but, but we boycotted Disney, and like, have you seen Moana? What's to boycott about that? But, I mean, it's amazing. So, but we boycotted Princesses. Uh, we, at one point, we boycotted Lowe's and Home Depot. So, I don't know where you're going to get your hammers anymore. Like, you boycotted both. Um, Christians have boycotted Cheerios. 
Uh, Christians boycotted Oreos at one point, which is, I don't know why, I can't remember why, I think it was about double stuff or something, but but they boycotted Oreos. Christians have boycotted JCPenney's. Um, that may have worked because they're going out of business. I don't know. Um, but Christians have boycotted um, there's several more. Oh, they boycotted the Muppets. They're like puppets. And we boycotted puppets. Um, cr- Christians boycotted, um, gosh, I mean, the list goes on and on, right? There's just so many things that Christians have boycotted. Cabbage Patch Dolls, remember that one? Like Christians were really upset about Cabbage Patch Dolls at one point. And I'm like, they're just plastic dolls. What are we upset about? But we were, and we, and we boycotted them. Um, and, and Christians are known for being against everything, too. I mean, we're, we're against science. Like, whenever science discovers something, the Christian response should be, oh, that's how God did it. Like, that should be our response. But, but when, when science discovers something, our, our response is, no, that can't be true. There's no way that's possible, because the earth is only 6,000 years old, so you're wrong, right? There's that weird thing where we just boycott science all the time. We, we boycott certain kinds of uh, thinking. We, 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 we kind of are against certain kinds of lifestyles. We're against certain professions. Um, we're against certain kind of ways of asking questions. I mean, we're just against everything. And, and, and I wish I could say that that was just something in the past, but it's not. It's so in the present now. In fact, a lot of you, a lot of you have not just been to churches in your past. A lot of you know of churches right now. You may have drove past a few of them to get here today. And that's kind of how they act. They're just against things. And their church sign says, we're, everyone is welcome. But then when you walk in, it's everyone's welcome. And you're welcome here. We're against you, by the way. And we don't want you to think the way you think. And you can't be a part of this unless you believe the way we believe. But you're welcome, right? And it's just interesting that we think that way. It's interesting that the church and, and Christians, Jesus followers, have kind of molded into that kind of, of thinking. Because I don't think that's the way that, that God thinks. I don't think that's the way that Jesus actually displayed God's heart when, when he was here. Now, I mean, benefit of the doubt, right? I, 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 think that, I think that Christians really mean well. Like, I think the boycotting was, was probably from the right heart. I, I think that, that Christians take things like sin really seriously. And we should take sin seriously. Be, because sin is this really difficult thing that removes you from your Heavenly Father. Now, it doesn't separate you, right? It's very important. Like, sin doesn't separate you from God if you're a, a Christian. It, it doesn't kind of remove the relationship. It doesn't change God's love for you. In fact, I think God loves people who sin even more. Because just like a dad loves children who get things wrong even more, because when they get things wrong, it creates hardship for them. I think that's how God sees us in sin. And so sin's a big deal. And I think as Christians, we should take that stuff seriously. So benefit of the doubt, I think the boycotts and the against and all that, I think it's from the right heart. I just wonder if the application of it is wrong. Like, I wonder if there's something kind of missing in that. Because the problem is the world around us doesn't see us as welcoming and for them. But the world actually kind of sees us as, as the world's big brother. That, that's kind of how Christianity or, or maybe the church is seen. Now, I don't know if you grew up with a big brother. Um, big brothers can be cool at times. Like, big brothers, you know, are fun when you're having, like, tickle fights or whatever. But, but, but big brothers typically aren't known for that. Big brothers are typically more like bullies. Big, big brothers like to walk around and, and tattletale on you. <laughs> big brothers like to walk around and, and tell mom and dad about all the things you're getting wrong, you're not doing right. And you remember this. If you're a sibling and you had an older sibling, you looked up to that big brother. Like, you wanted that big brother's approval. Like you loved it when that big brother would stop and pause and give you a ride somewhere or just acknowledge that, that you exist. But oftentimes you didn't get that. And, and the relationship with the big brother could be difficult. And, and the world kind of sees the church as, as the world's big brother. They we're always kind of pointing out what's wrong. We're always kind of catching people. We're always wanting to tell on people. And, 
I, I just don't know that, that that's what Christianity is really supposed to be about. And I don't, I don't think the church is supposed to look like that. You know, what's so interesting is that if, if you look back in the Bible and you uh, read like 2,000 years ago when Jesus was around, um, there, there was a group of people who were absolutely known as the big brothers uh, of the world. And they were called the Pharisees. Uh, the, the Pharisees were the religious elite. Okay, some of you may know about this. The, 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 the Pharisees were like the religious elite. They were the Jewish guys. Um, and all they did all day is make sure that they obeyed the laws and that everyone else obeyed the laws. That was their entire livelihood. They, they would make sure that you were doing what you were supposed to do. They would make sure that they were doing what they were supposed to do. They're super hypocritical all the time, but that didn't matter because, you know, they kind of made the laws, and if you make the law, then you feel more apt to break the law, but no one else can. So that's what the Pharisees did. They were super religious elite, and, 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 and they were very difficult. They were the big brothers of the church. So when Jesus shows up on the planet, like God Nabod, right, when he's on the planet, he's super not religious that way. Like, he's always doing things that really upset the Pharisees. And every time the Pharisees would come around Jesus, they were constantly trying to trap him or catch him because he just drove them nuts. He was nice to people who they hated. He would have pizza with people who they despised. I mean, the guy, everything he did ruffled the, the Pharisees' kind of feathers, okay? So there's this moment, Luke, maybe you heard of Luke. Luke um, wrote two books of the Bible. He wrote the book of Luke. We didn't name it creatively. And, and he wrote the book of Acts. Uh, the book of Luke is like the account of the life of Jesus. And Luke interviewed everybody he could possibly interview. Like a few years after Jesus had died and came back to life. Spoiler alert if you didn't know that. So, so a few years later, he, he interviews everybody. And he, and he writes this account of the life of Jesus. And in this account, he retells this narrative of a moment in time where Jesus and the Pharisees were all together, and the Pharisees were really upset with Jesus. Now, I, I'm going to tell you a little bit about this. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's basically three parables. And, and a parable is what Jesus constantly taught in. A parable is just a story that has a really important meaning to it. And in every parable, maybe you know this, in every parable, God is one of the characters, and like we're one of the characters. We're usually the stupid person in the story, okay? But we're going to focus on one parable this morning, and in this parable, there's a third character. And the third character, I think, is the one that we need to focus on the most because it's the one that might actually represent kind of us the most. So here's kind of how the whole narrative starts. Here's how Luke kind of reads it. He says this. He says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, which is, pause really quick, it's really interesting because the tax collectors were really the worst of the worst. Like, they were even worse than the sinners. I mean, in fact, when Luke was interviewing people, people kept saying to Luke, yeah, the sinners, the tax collectors. He's like, wait a minute. They're so bad, they have their own category, okay? So, so Jesus isn't just hanging around like bad people. He's hanging around bad people and really bad people. I mean, the tax collectors were the worst of the worst. They're the traitors. I mean, they, they had the best cars and the best houses because they were like extortionists. I mean, these guys were the worst, okay? So Jesus, he's always with them. And Luke makes sure he starts the idea with this story, right? That, that Jesus is hanging around with not just the bad people. He's hanging around with the worst of the worst people and the bad people. Okay, the Pharisees didn't like that. Here, here's what Luke says happens next. Um, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, kind of the same group, okay, muttered. And muttered is funny, too, right? Like, Luke specifically says that. Like, they're kind of like under their breath. They're just mad all the time at Jesus, right? So they muttered. This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Which is, I mean, the fact that you would welcome a sinner is way beyond normal. But the fact that you would welcome a sinner and that you would even spend time with them, like you would maybe even be touched by them, I mean, it made you unclean. I mean, it's just so, so, so not okay. At least to the Pharisees, it wasn't. And here's why. 
Because religious people, this is important, right? This is the Pharisees. Religious people often believe that God is more concerned with performance than repentance. You know some of these people, right? Don't elbow them if they're beside you, but you know some of these people. Religious people often believe that God is way more concerned about how you're behaving than what you believe. That God is more concerned with your performance than about kind of your posture towards him. And in the middle of that moment, Jesus goes, nah, that, that is not who God is. And, and I know that you think, Pharisees, that's how God is. And I know, Pharisees, you think that you and God are like this because you behave so well. But you're not as close to God as you think you are. Because God isn't as concerned about that as you think he is. So to help him understand that, he, he starts telling them some stories. He tells these parables. The first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. Maybe you've heard this. The, the big idea is that there's a shepherd. He has, he has 100 sheep. One of them goes missing. And so Jesus says that, that the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep, and he goes and finds the one that's missing. He searches until he finds him. And he leaves the 99 kind of in peril. But, but the point is that God is for those. That's the point. God is for those who are far from him. That was the point. So if the sheep wanders off, the shepherd, God in the story, is going to leave the 99 because the one is so important. He's going to go and find it. And when he does find it, he's going to put it on his shoulder. He's going to bring it back. And they're going to have a huge party because the lost sheep is found. And he's back home where he belongs. So that was kind of a fun little story. The Pharisees are like, okay, well, you know, whatever. Okay, I think God is, all right, whatever. He cares about lost things, whatever. And Jesus goes, nah, you don't quite understand it yet. Let me tell you one more. He tells them the story of the lost coin. The story of the lost coin goes like this. There's a lady who has 10 silver coins, and she loses one of them in her house. And as the story goes, Jesus says that she turns her house upside down. Sofas everywhere, right? You know, futons everywhere, whatever. She eventually finds the lost coin. And when she finds it, everybody in the neighborhood celebrates with her. Because something very valuable was lost, and now it is found. And the Pharisees are getting a little more nervous. Because Jesus has twice now kind of explained something that they don't really fully want to embrace. Then he looks at him and he says, I got one more for you. And it's actually the, the parable of the lost son. Maybe you've heard it, the, the parable of the prodigal son. Now this parable is very fascinating. Because this parable just doesn't have God and lost things in it. It has somebody else in it as well. I'm going to spend a few minutes and unpack this part um, if you're not a Jesus follower, this is going to be really important for you to hear because this is actually the heart of Jesus. In fact, if, if you could kind of get past the Jesus people and just meet Jesus himself, you would fall in love with him because he is so incredibly in love with you. In fact, the reason that you don't love him already is because people like me have just gotten in the way. So, so what you're about to see is actually the heart of God. Here's kind of how Jesus tells this story. It's so beautiful. He says that Jesus continued with his storytelling, right? There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, at this point, the tax collectors, the sinners, and the Pharisees, everybody in the room is gasping. <gasps> what? Because nobody would do that. I mean, it is so incredibly offensive. I mean, it's offensive in this time. Like, if you have a son, I, I've got a couple of kids. Like, if one of my kids walked up to me and said, hey, dad, you know, whatever, you're cool and all, I guess, but I, I actually wish you were dead more than alive because I could have some money if you were. So can you just pretend you're dead and give me my share of the estate so I can go off and do what I want? That's basically what's happening. Now, that would be offensive to me, right? But in this time, it's hard to even imagine 2,000 years ago how unbelievably offensive that was. So this kid walks up in the story, and everybody is on the same page in the room. Sinners, uh, uh, Pharisees, tax collectors, they're all on the same page. Yeah, this is awful. No one 
No one should ever do that. Now that Jesus has them on the same page, he continues. This is great. He says, but while he was still a long way off, sorry, so, so he gives him the money. He, 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 he gives the guy the money. He goes off and squanders it all. Like, I mean, he just spends it all on wild living. He's drinking. He's doing all sorts of stuff he shouldn't do. He's like sleeping with pigs, which, I mean, that sounds gross today, but back then, I mean, unbelievably offensive. Like, everything is wrong. So he decides to come home after he's lost all the money. The dad has been watching every day on the front porch for his son to come home, right? And eventually, the son decides to come back home. And he's got nothing left anymore, right? So here's where the story picks up. But while he was still a long way off, this, this kid, his father saw him, and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. This is so beautiful. That's the heart of God for people who are far from God. That, that's the point of that little moment in the parable. It's so beautiful. Like, no matter how far from God you have been, God doesn't want to pay you back. He just wants you to come back. And he wants to hug you. And he wants to embrace you. That's all he really wants from you, is for you to turn around. That's it. And he'll, he's already forgiven the other stuff. It's all good. It's all good. He just wants you to come back. That was the point of this little moment. Now, look what Luke says next. It's so beautiful, right? The, uh, the son said to him, because he's been rehearsing the speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the dad looks at me and says, no, no, no. You, you stop your speech. You don't need to tell me anything. And look what the dad says. The dad says, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. In fact, they began to celebrate in a big way. The, the dad tells his servants to go get like the robe, the really special robe, and put it on this lost son that's now found. And he, he tells some other guys, he goes, hey, you know the calf that we've been fattening up? Yeah, go kill it because we're having filet tonight. Like we're, go, we're having high eight barbecue. So go kill, or hard eight, sorry. We're go, go kill the thing, go kill the, the calf, go kill the sheep, go, we're about to eat, we're celebrating because my son is back. Now, at that point in the story, everybody was like, What? Is that really how God is? They couldn't believe it. Because that is not where they had grown up believing. And, and here's what you probably know, right? Most times when we tell that story, that's where we end. And, and it's a good ending. It's a really celebratory ending. And that is the heart of God for people who are far from him. That's exactly how God feels. But here's the thing. The Pharisees were in the room. And Jesus knew that they needed a little bit more of a story. Because so far, they hadn't been painted into the parable yet. I mean, so far, God is in it as the Father, and, and people who are far from God are in it, but the, but the religious people who think that they're better than everybody else, the churches who think they're better than everybody else, they, they weren't in the story yet. <laughs> so Jesus continues. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And you know what the older son was doing? The older son was doing what older sons do, usually, following the rules doing what he was supposed to do, not offending his dad, not taking his inheritance before he was supposed to get it and squandering it on wild living. He, he is not doing any of those things, right? He's doing what he's supposed to do. And look what happens. This is so great. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked, what's going on? What's going on? And the servant responds, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Now, how do you think the older brother felt about that? Well, Jesus tells us, right? He says, the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. Like the dad goes out to the older son and he's like, dude, your, your brother is home. 
Like, can, can we, can you please come in and celebrate? Everybody's celebrating. We're all so excited to have him back. And then the older brother responds. Um, but, but he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. Like you're, you're having filet for my younger brother who's like a tool and I just want a goat kebab with my friends and you won't do any of that. Like it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating to this older brother, right? Look, look what happens next. But when, it's, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, dad, I don't know if you knew that, but by the way, like he's really bad, like this kid of yours, right? He, when he comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him? It's so offensive to the older brother. And then look how the dad responds. My son, and he still calls him son. It's so important, right? My son, the father said, or God said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. Now, the parable of the lost son has a simple principle too. You know what it is? <laughs> that, that God is for people who are far from him. That's the point. But here's the thing. See, God is the father, and, and the younger son is all of us when we have been lost in time. But here's the, here's the reality. When you went from being lost to being found, guess who a lot of us became? A lot of us became the older brother. And we began to be mad at the younger brothers. We began to treat the younger brothers in a way that we shouldn't treat them. We began to actually treat the, the, the younger brothers in a way that God would never treat the younger brother. You see, the younger brother in the story, the, the point was just simply this, that, that God is for you, God is for you, and that God is with you. That's the point. And that's what God wants everyone to know in the world today, that he is for you and that he is with you. And his church is actually his mouthpiece of that message, that God is for people and he is with people. But the people around our communities and the people who are growing up today around churches and the people who are interacting with churches and interacting with Christians, you know what they actually feel? They don't really feel that, do they? Most people feel the opposite. They actually feel that God is against them and that he's watching them. That's what people feel. And you know why they feel that? They, they feel that because that's what we've done. They, they feel that because we've just behaved kind of like the big brother. And, and we feel like we have our stuff together. And we feel like we're better than they are. And as churches, we just love to tell people that we're better. And we love to tell them what's wrong with them. And we love to be against things. And we love to, we love to kind of help them see what's wrong with them. But the story couldn't be more clear. That, that isn't the heart of God. And the church is supposed to be the, the mouthpiece of the love of God, which means, which means that the way that we interact with the world around us individually as, as Christians and collectively, corporately as, as churches should represent the heart of God, should represent the Father in the story, which means that we have to throw our arms open to a lot of people who aren't very clean and are really pretty messy. But by the way, isn't, isn't that kind of all of us too? I mean, if any of you have all of your stuff together, you should probably be up here instead of me because none of us really do, right? We're all kind of jacked up in some way or another and God still loves you and God still loves you. So, so what does it look like practically? Like, what does it actually look like to be a church that represents the father in this story, not, not the big brother in this story? Look, can, I, can I give you just four things that I think it, it means? 
Now, here's the point where there's going to be a little tension, and that's okay. Like, if you're paying attention to this, if you've slept the whole time, just pay attention for one minute, because this is actually what it looks like to live like the heart of God as a church. And I think this is what it looks like to, to be the father in the story, not to be the big brother in the story. Here's the first one. The first one is that we can't get mad at lost things. Now, now think about this. We all the time, we constantly, we constantly get mad at people who are far from God for behaving like they're far from God. Isn't that weird? Like, like we should never be frustrated with someone who beha- behaves like they're far from God if they're far from God because they haven't signed up for it anyway. Like, if we should be mad at anybody, we should be mad at each other for being mad at those people. If we should be mad at anything, we should just kind of be accountable and confront each other. In fact, that's biblical. It says that it's okay to judge those who are believers with you if you're okay being judged by them equally. That's okay. But it also says that we're not to judge people who are outside of the faith because they haven't agreed to do any things that we've agreed to anyway. So what does it look like to to not get mad at lost things? That's kind of complicated, isn't it? Because lost things behave in lost ways. And God says, hey, when you open your arms to those kinds of people and you allow yourself to foster a real relationship with those people, that's when their life might start changing. But, but it's your job not to be mad at them because lost people are going to behave like lost people. That's it's okay. That's what they're supposed to do. Here's the next one. <laughs> not only can we not get mad at lost things, we can't expect lost people to behave like found people. We cannot expect lost people to behave like found people. We just can't. Think about the implications of that. We can go on for hours and we won't, but there are so many implications of that. And you know the tension in that, don't you? Like you feel the tension in that. But we can't expect lost people to behave like found people. Here's the third one. Um, We will never be concerned as a church. We will never be concerned about guilt by association. That's one of the things the Pharisees were so upset about. Jesus is constantly hanging around with sinners and tax collectors and all the worst of the worst people. And all the religious people watched Jesus and thought, well, he must be one of them because he's hanging around them. And Jesus, you know what Jesus would say? He's like, I'm not one of them. I want to win them. And I can't win them if I'm over here and they're over there. Like, I can't. Like, I can't, I can't confront them from over here and throw darts at them from over here and then, and then them go, oh, you're right, I should follow Jesus because he seems so loving and welcoming, right? Like, like, we can't do that. Jesus intentionally spent time with the worst people on the planet. You know why? Because he loved them. And he wanted them to have a better life. Not, not, not because of sin and stuff. He, he wanted them to have a better life because a life in a relationship with Jesus makes life better and makes us better at life. And that's what he wanted for them. And here's what he knew. This is so much tension. He knew the only way for them to begin to experience a better life would be for him to experience life with them first. So he engaged in relationship with them, like real relationship. And and not for the purpose of converting them and not for the purpose of like any sort of weird kind of project stuff. He just wanted to be friends with them. And he wanted to get to know them. If you're not sure about that, go back and read the four accounts of the life of Jesus, the all four gospels. And every time Jesus bumps into a person who's far from God or behaving that way, what does he do? What does he do? I'll tell you. I'll save you the time. He says, hey, can we go hang out together? He constantly is doing that. He constantly says, hey, you're not condemned. Now, I want to challenge you to think differently, but we'll get to that in a minute. Can we just go hang out for a minute? I mean, think about how he treats Zacchaeus, you know? I mean, Zacchaeus is up in a tree because he's scared to death to be with the people because everybody hates him. And, and, and Jesus walks by and he, and he doesn't look at Zacchaeus and say, hey, come down, you need a spanking. 
He looks at Zacchaeus. He says, hey, come down. We need to go get some McDonald's together. Like, we got to go hang out together. I, I want to get to know you. Because if we get to know each other, God will change your life. How, how does that feel in, in a church? It's super tension, isn't it? I mean, how many, don't, we probably shouldn't go too far down this road, but how many churches are frustrated with, with North Tarrant because you are willing to welcome people in who don't believe what you believe and you let them serve and you let them participate and, and you baptize them. It's like all this stuff is going on. And the other churches are looking around and they're going, are you kidding me? Like, look at the way they live. Look at their lifestyle. Look at what they believe. How, I, can't, I can't imagine that we would let that person be a part of this. Uh, you know who they are? That, that's fair, that's fair aesthetical thinking. Because how does God change people's lives? It's very simple. Through relationships. That's how. That's how. And if you think that's easy, then you haven't been paying attention to anything Jesus ever did. Because <laughs> it wasn't easy for him. In fact, they killed him for that. It's really hard to do. But it's, it's the heart of God. Here, here's the last one. We'll do this one faster. Here's the last one. We will only be concerned with helping people have a growing relationship with Jesus. That's it. Like, if we're going to accomplish one thing with people, it's that. Now, I'm going to speak on behalf of me, not Scott. So Scott can tell you next week that, that guy's an idiot. Don't do what he said. But, but here's how we operate at North Point. And here's how we operate in, in, at Woodstock City in, in, in our church. We're concerned with one thing, leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus. And here's why. We believe fully that a growing relationship with Jesus is the only thing that matters. Because God will deal with what God needs to deal with through that growing relationship. It is not my job to change anybody's life. It is not even my job to confront anyone's problems. It's my job to introduce them to Jesus and let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit is really good at doing. And I'm terrible at it. Now, the reason I know that is because I spent a lot of my life trying to be the Holy Spirit. And the one thing I learned is I'm bad at it. But I also learned that when we can introduce people into a growing relationship with Jesus it begins to change everything in their heart. And as their heart changes, their life changes. And as their life changes, everything around them changes. Think about how much tension is in that idea. Like, really, what would it look like for you to just be concerned with one thing? Other people having a growing relationship with Jesus. And I know there's like so much objections in that, right? Like, well, what about sin? Or what about the lifestyle? Or what about their beliefs? Or what about, what about, what about? And I get all that. I totally understand all that. But, but, but maybe on the other side, what if none of that really mattered outside of a growing relationship with Jesus? And, and what if a real growing relationship with Jesus had the potential to change everything in their heart? I actually think that's what Jesus was trying to illustrate in that story. I think he was trying to remind us that that relationship is enough. And if all we do is get that right, we've done exactly what the church is called to do. Can, can you imagine, just for a minute, imagine if every community had a church like this, where we held our arms open as wide as we could for every single person in the community, no matter what they believed, no matter how they behaved, no matter what they were doing, no matter what they did yesterday, no matter what they did the morning driving to church, like no matter, right? What would it look like if we held our arms so wide open to every single person in our community that when they came in, they genuinely felt welcomed and they genuinely felt loved and they genuinely leaned in and over time, they just kept coming back and they, they weren't sure what they believed yet, but they really liked it and it was helpful and they wanted to come back and, and test it a little more. And, and what would happen to that person? If over the course of a few different weeks and a few different months, 
They began to see God differently. They began to see a relationship with Jesus differently. Like, what would that look like? What would that look like? I, I think that's what the church is supposed to look like. At, at Woodstock City, every week, we have people walking in from every background you can imagine. I get to meet a lot of them. I, I just met a person a couple of weeks ago who grew up, and his, his mom was a spiritualist, and his dad was an atheist, and he's somewhere confused in between. And he said, I, I don't even know what I believe, but I feel like this church is okay with me doubting, and I feel like this church is okay with me being skeptical and asking some really hard questions. And I was like, are you kidding me? Of course we're okay with that. Because doubt and faith aren't opposites. They actually work together. If you didn't have any doubt, you wouldn't even need faith. Think about that, right? Like the, the fact that you have faith is because there is some ability to doubt. So why should we be mad about that? We should embrace that. We should ask those hard questions. We should allow space for people to ask those kind of questions. We should even allow space for people to believe differently than we believe. Because if all we're really concerned about is a growing relationship with Jesus, well, maybe that's what will get them there fastest. See, as a church, here's what we have tried to do. And I think this is what all of our churches are trying to do. Kind of here's our theme. We would say that, that we want to be for people. We want to be for everyone. And here's why. Because God is for everyone. And it's a real unfortunate thing. I'm going to close with this. It's a real unfortunate thing that people believe God is like you. And that stinks. Because we are not great at being God. And we are not great at loving the way God loves. We are not always great at showing grace and mercy the way God shows grace and he shows mercy. But people who are far from God are going to assume that God is like us. And that's quite a challenge. It means that in everything that we do, we're sending a message about who God is. And in every interaction, people are taking cues about God from the cues that they're reading from us. I know you've heard this before, but what does love require of us? Well, it probably requires we just be concerned about leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus. Because in the end, that's what God really wants the most. I'd love to pray with you guys. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you entered the world through Jesus and that you, you loved everyone so drastically differently because of him. God, thank you that, that we have an, an opportunity to have a right standing with you because of our belief, not because of our behavior. And thank you that you've also positioned us to be your mouthpiece in the world. And God, that is, that is messy and it's complicated and it's not black and white. But God, I don't, I don't really think you're that black and white. I think that your primary concern is a relationship. Because God, I, I, think, that, I think that you use that relationship to change your heart. And, and actually, I know that's true because that's, that's my story. And it's actually the story of every person I know who's a follower of Jesus. It happens over time, and it happens through incremental steps. So God, just as a group of churches, help us keep that really in the forefront of who we want to be. And even though it's messy and even though it's complicated, God, just allow us to always lean into the fullness of grace. And we can season in truth as, as you give us opportunities, but allow grace to be the thing that we always lead with and love to be the thing that defines kind of who we are. God, thank you for allowing us to partner with you in that message, and thank you for allowing us to be a part of what you're doing all really around the world. God, we love you. Jesus, we pray all of this in your name. Amen.